0: Welcome to 17 Minutes with ROE 17. This is Mark Jontre, Regional Superintendent of Schools, and joining me on today's episode, Molly Allen, Assistant Superintendent at ROE 17, and our guest, Kevin Jones. And Kevin, it's good to see you again. Uh, last, Just last week, we had the opportunity to feat you at the Illinois Prairie Community Foundation's Philanthropist of the Year, and that's a great honor and well-deserved. So congratulations to you on that.
1: Thank you, Mark. Uh, pleasure to be here with, with all of you. I'm really excited about today.
0: Well, Kevin, we wanted to have you on because you have really uh, moved forward the practice of restorative practice, not only in central Illinois through our office, but really in, in places around the country as well as around the world. And so Molly and I were really interested in having you come in and really um, give you know a broader picture and, and more depth to to restorative practice, and uh, so why don't we start there. Can you explain to the listeners what restorative practice is and maybe, as importantly, what it isn't?
1: Yeah, what restorative practices is, is, is actually an emerging social science, and it focuses heavily on building relationships and building communities um, with a, a keen um, understanding or a keen goal of, um, you know, once we build those communities, Um, harm happens sometimes you know um, people get into arguments a lot of a lot of harm that I've seen has been unintentional but it gives you these evidence-based ways that when harm does happen you have ways to resolve that harm a lot of times we always think of the big harm but even the the small stuff you know and then once we repair that harm it gives us a process on how to restore that community you know so um, I, I remember working uh, with a group in Yudas, uh, Florida, and after the training they said they were going to spend the next year just building community because you can't repair a community that you've never built. And so, you know, you can repair harm and without having community, but if you want to have process to rebuild community, you got to build it first. And so it's just a heavy emphasis on relationship, it's the science of relationships and community.
2: Thank you, Kevin. Um, could you give us an example of how you have seen restorative practices positively impact our local school communities? Um, when we think of traditional school discipline, you know, what makes restorative practices look different in those settings?
1: I could actually talk about this for hours, and so I'm gonna try to be very concise. My journey with restorative practices, the, the biggest ahas for me was that this is not new stuff. It's actually stuff I learned in residential treatment facilities, in group homes, and at alternative ed, and all the work that I've done. So it is not a, a replacement for what we know. It actually provides a framework to just make what we know better. And so some of the, stri- like there's four explicit practices. And the first one is called the social discipline window it aligns with the hypothesis of restorative practices and it basically says that people are more willing to change behavior when those with authority and or influence does stuff with them as opposed to to them, for them or being neglectful of them. So we start there, how do we work with people? It's kind of a leadership model because it's how we engage with people we have authority and or influence over. So you can take that into a household, you can take it into a giant organization. So that's the first explicit practice. And then the second one is fair process. What does it mean to be fair? Because when you think about people who feel marginalized, they always say, you know, that's not fair, that's not fair. Well, it gives you that way to be fair. And those is three principles. Engagement, which equals your voice. Uh, understanding, which means I understand what an organizational boss is asking me to do, and I can ask questions and be okay asking those questions. And then expectation clarity, we made a decision. What does that look like? What are the new rules? How do we move that forward? So that's the second one. The third one is understanding self and others, especially when we talk about understanding behavior, the story behind the behavior, understanding our own triggers, understanding triggers of other people so we can separate the behavior from who they are. They have value, they, they made a mistake, so we need to call them out on the behavior but not toss them away. And this section is called psychology of affect. It's really a lot of self-reflection through this process. Is Like I said, dealing with our own stuff and how do we move through harm? Because when harm happens, both parties feel a, a level of shame. And so these strategies gives us a way to work through that shame in healthy ways so we can repair the harm. And then the last one is called the restorative practice continuum application. It starts out with simple language, effective language, telling people what you think and feel about their behavior uh giving feedback to people setting boundaries with people and then you got those research-based restorative question cards that people talk so much about They're evidence-based cards they allow people they give a voice to the person who you're asking the questions if they cause harm they get a chance to tell their story to discuss impact uh and more importantly discuss solutions and the something that is lost with restorative practice and restorative justice is that there's a belief that it focused heavily on the person that caused the harm. It really was designed to give a voice to people who were harmed, who were usually eliminated from the process. You know, that's just kind of the framework, but what I love about restorative practice and what I get to see from schools and just our local schools in particular, being able to handle discipline in a better way. Uh, the biggest mistake that people make with restorative practice is they try to turn it into a behavior mod program and that makes it narrow. There are five reasons that restorative practice fail. If it's only top-down, it, it, it should, I mean, driven by top, uh, by leaders, it's not a bad thing, but if it's only top-down, it becomes compliance and we end up doing restore, restorative to people and not with people. Narrow, that we only focus on the responsive practices. Uh, you know, one of the biggest, uh, I wouldn't even call it an aha, not, it's, it's kind of a concern because I've done thousands of trainings. The first two days of restorative practice trainings focus on the 80% of building relationships and being able to take care of things along the way. I've done 99% of my trainings have been those. The two days of training, the restorative justice training, facilitating restorative conferences, it was about 1%. So most people create space for the proactive trainings and consulting But they jump to the responsive where a lot of people are not trained in it. And if you're really engaging at 80 percent, you reduce the number of those responsive big issue items. So I love a lot of the things that are done in our community, though, because I get the go back to schools. I have a lot of email contact, phone contact with a lot of our local schools and community organizations, just to see and hear how people are utilizing these practices in their school and in their everyday life, because there is a lot of reflection with this work. It really, all of these practices starts with us just reflecting, being introspective about, you know, kind of nurturing our introspection about how we handle our emotions and how do we handle mental health.
0: say are some misconceptions
1: or the biggest misconception about restorative practice? I think the biggest misconception is, it's a couple. One, that the focus is on the person that caused the harm, like giving them a break that is soft. Oh, there's no discipline. We sit around and talk about it. But what's interesting about that misconception is punishment is actually passive discipline because no one ever has to take responsibility for what they did in a restorative process, it doesn't even happen unless the person who caused the harm owns that harm and wants to make it right. You know, a lot of times when I get into responsive circles, the hardest work is not the circle. The hardest work is I meet with every individual and have these restorative conversations, and if that person is not ready to own their behavior, I wouldn't do the conference. I've I've actually passed on conferences for that exact reason. Where like I said, in traditional punitive situations, somebody does something in your school, you suspend them, they go home. They come back three days later, the issue not resolved. And I see that a lot in schools, a lot of these unresolved conflicts, even on a smaller scale, because we go back to that continuum, doing that 80%, something comes up, we're gonna talk, we're gonna address it. We're gonna we're gonna use effective language, we're gonna use those restorative questions, we're gonna work to a solutions. And I always think about in the school setting. You know how when school starts, I was at alt Air for 21 years, and I love the beginning of school because everybody was the best of their best. <laughs> you know, everybody's happy to be there, and then they have a few conflicts, and then all of a sudden it's not as good, and then they build up, and it's like, okay, it's October, we get a break, and then it's Thanksgiving, and starts all over. Well, taking those times, because a lot of these practices can be done, they're not all sit down and do. They're effective language, restorative questions, walking around because you use those questions to give praise as much as you do to address behavior. And what you're doing, you're creating space for when those big things happen. You got time for it. Because a lot of places I go, locally and around the country, I can tell right away when I walk into a school. If there's a lot of chaos, there is a lot of putting out fires, what that tells me is there hasn't been a lot of focus on building relationship and community. I've never gone into a school that didn't have, in big letters, relationships, relationships, but we assume people are good at managing, creating those relationships. And I'll be honest with you, the restorative work is, you know, again, with SB 100, it feels like here's another tool for discipline. 90% of my work and my focus is adults, how we treat ourselves and how we treat each other because that has direct impact on our students. And I've seen that in my work experience when I was a residential. The kids do what the kids do. But if we're not being restorative with ourselves and each other, that's when we have more of a negative, negative impact. That's a great point.
2: As both an educator and a parent, I've had the opportunity to attend and participate in your training. So I'm excited to ask you this question and see what you think. What is one simple way that families, schools, or community members can implement restorative practices into their lives?
1: yeah i think you know the biggest one and the, the the most success and i'll start with me when i came across these restorative practices it felt good because it felt familiar when i was at my best as a leader as a staff as a parent as a person i was engaging in a restorative practices because these practices came way before the research the research is about 25 years old and continuing but these were practices based on when we think of those people in our lives who we looked up to, like still to this day, we have a relationship with them, we looked up, we have a lot of respect for them. Those people were engaging with us in restorative practices. That's why they had such a positive impact on our lives. But it was implicit. You couldn't explain it. I know in my career, you know, especially when I did residential or even in alt ed, we're dealing with behaviors. I've always had, that's been a high skill for me. And people ask me what I do, and it's like, I don't know. Well, I was engaging in these practices, and when I learned to take it from being this implicit thing that we can do when everything's right to something that is a science and we can really be intentional about utilizing those, this process became just so much more doable. So going back to the original question, is is how we show up? Are we working with people? Are we uh, being intentionally fair? Are we uh, understanding ourselves and others so we're not triggering things? Because sometimes we are not checking ourselves and we come in and boom, whether it's as a parent, as a boss, or a teacher, we can really set that tone based on how we show up. And then it's that application. Be proactively building relationships and community with using effective language to, again, set boundaries. I'm not okay with that teaching empathy. It worries me when I hear stuff going on with you out in the streets or outside of the classroom or whatever. And to just give feedback, I really appreciate what you're bringing today. Or, you know, I hear what you're saying, but we need to work on this differently because it's not working. So it just gives you this really cool structure. So, and that's why it fits in so many places. There are four words I always share out in my trainings, just it's to be mindful, you know? And those four words are just in, intentional engagement, so intentionally engaging with everyone we come in contact with, utilizing explicit restorative practices. Why? Because every time we come in contact someone, starting with us, we're going to have an impact, so let's be intentional about that impact. And then the last one is just that reflection, that introspection, that will continue to grow. And this work is not crazy wide because I do a lot of I've taken a lot of information about this work all the time. It's not wide, but it's, it's really deep. It's a framework to bring everything you've learned, everything you experienced through it, and it just makes it better, and that's why I, I never get tired of sharing it out.
2: I would say, again, as a educator and parent, one of the big takeaways I've had from the training is when I have a student or my own children having a hard time, the first question is to kind of, how can I help you? <clears throat> or acknowledge it instead of, you know, why are you doing that or that sort of thing. So that really helps de-escalate. And we have the opportunity, we share restorative practices with our sub-trainings. And so I think the reach has been pretty inclusive and wide locally. And we know you're all over the world too.
0: Would you talk a little bit, Kevin, about just all of your experiences? Not only, obviously, you've t- touched on here locally, but what that experience has been like as you've gone across the country and, and then to other continents and, and done this work.
1: Those experiences have been powerful, and they've been so many that sometimes I forget. I remember when I first heard about restorative practice and started doing, getting trained, what I was fascinated about the first time I went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the incredible people who were showing up. A lot of PhDs, a lot of faith-based, people with some pretty huge jobs around the country. I was always fascinated by how big this work was. And then, so that was kind of the learning piece for me. But then when I started going out and introducing this work to schools, I've had opportunities to train law enforcement schools around the country some of the ones that uh, stood out early was flint michigan i spent a lot of time and i still have a relationship with flint michigan with all the horrible things that have happened in that city and uh you know we knew about the water piece but high violence i remember going to one of the schools and and i always ask people why they do the work they do there's one principal described describe four deaths that happened right before christmas break and having to you know, deal with that, having these restorative circles as ways to be able to, you know, create space for people to talk about that stuff. Compton, California, going into that community and training. But then, you know, some of the interesting ones Friendship Wisconsin, you know, very rural community was really struck by the fact that on the back of their lanyards, they had the restorative question cards. So they had a restorative leader years before that kind of left that mark and it was on the back of all of their IDs. So I think the biggest thing for my takeaways, I mean, like I said, the kids, you go into places, and especially the ones that are reaching out for restorative practices, again, they're thinking how we're gonna address behavior, but really getting there and realizing how to support the staff and that this is really, you know, people can't wait to get kids on a circle. And when I do trainings, I, I really encourage, no, let's get, let's get in circles and start talking because especially, in the schools you're asking teachers to do this and that's where top down gets in the way sometimes because sometimes top down means okay you've been training restorative practice everybody go do circles well people are not comfortable so giving them a chance to experience it to see how doable it is because we do circles all the time i mean so many media if you move most of your meetings you probably have you move the desks. you're in a circle you know that's not a new thing at sports in and out of circles constantly uh, but it's something when you talk about it through this lens, it makes people a little bit nervous. And so, even in trainings, I probably get—I try to get people facilitating circles all the way, but also reminding them that this is not just about circles. You do 80% of work before you sit down in a circle. The circles are there. You use them to build. You use them to learn. I encourage people to teach in circles, especially, you know, because a lot—I get a lot of pushback. Well, don't have time. Well, you do your learning outcomes at the beginning of every class, right? Five-minute circle. You transition to another class, right? Five-minute circle. You don't have to. You When the big stuff happens, you make time for the circles. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you can do some quick standing circles like that. And I see it all the time. My, my wife's a seventh grade teacher. Right after COVID, they, when they were going back, she was like freaking out. And I'm like, I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> circle them up and get to know them. And yeah. this has been her best teaching year because she's been more committed to doing it consistently not just compliance and that's what you get a lot of times is that compliance piece
0: and that's really the most important as important piece is intentional implementation Yes. Yeah, and, and doing like you said just doing a little bit of that work at the outset and but doing it consistently exactly um, can diminish the need for the bigger events yeah or the imp- lessen the impact yeah. of, of the negative side of those bigger events no you're right and
1: just one thing else on that because when I first got trained in restorative practice and I wanted to bring it back to, uh, to RAS I was excited about it and so and I was also working on a class it was my action research class and so uh, what I wanted to do for the class and for the what was going on at RAS I just started doing responsive circles Uh, One group of kids had missed 50% of school at that time. Another group were having 25 office referrals a week. Did responsive circles for eight weeks. Attendance went up 27%. Office referrals went down 68%. And a lot of people were like, wow, great behavior my program. It wasn't. We were getting to know each other better. We were starting to hear, you know, when that kid was cursing us out at the door when he was late all the time and we're giving him stuff, when he curses us out and said, you blank should – Uh, lucky I'm here he was right he was 13 in line to take a shower before he came to school every day Uh and we're thinking progressive discipline we get to know the story now we're the focus is how do we support this kid getting the school as opposed to how we punish this kid for not being this at school and so it's it's, you get to know the stories behind the story you build those relationships and and you all know this from we got relationship with people we can have real conversations and so we got to build a relationship first and that's the missing link
0: that's, at the end of the day, that's what education is. It's a relationship yep. business, isn't it?
1: Yep, it is, 100%.
0: Well, Kevin, I want to thank you for taking the time today to visit with Molly and I. Is there anything uh, that you would like to say as we kind of wrap up today's episode?
1: Yes, I think the biggest thing I would say is you're already engaged in a restorative work. If you're leading this work, my advice to you is to catch people being restorative, cause people are doing restorative stuff anyways. Help them name it. Help introduce them to this framework, because this framework can be done, if it has to do with people, it can be done, and focus on building those relationships, focus on building those communities, and it is a lot of free resources out there. You can self-learn. There's so much stuff, whether you go to Google Images, whether you go to YouTube, whether you visit IARP, the International Institute for Restorative Practices, there's so many free resources at everybody's disposal that you can self-learn, because not. this is not complicated. This is very doable, and we do it all the time. So. Very good.
0: On that, we will be sure to include the IIRP website as we conclude this podcast. Kevin, I want to thank you. Again, congratulations on the recognition. And thank you, ultimately, for all the work you're doing in this realm because it's very important to help advance not only our schools but just uh, move society forward in general. And thank you.
1: And thank you. Thanks for having me.